Good morning. It's been a great day together. It's been a uh, blessing. I hope uh, you have felt the blessing as well. And um, God is doing good things among us. Uh, the phrase that uh, keeps coming up in my head over and over and over again, and I will probably mention it over and over and over again, it's this, small but not weak. You know what I'm saying? Small but not weak. Small and powerful. I think that's how uh, this particular outpost in God's kingdom functions and functions quite well. We'll get to demonstrate that again on, uh, on Wednesday night as uh, TU comes and joins us around our tables and we get to share a meal uh, I've already heard from former students and players who say they're going to pop in just because they remember what the bounty was like. So that speaks really highly of us and uh, what we're able to do here. So that's great. Uh, if you have your Bible, open to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, that's where we'll spend our time this morning. One day, way back when I was in high school, we were sitting outside in our stadium during lunch, waiting for the period to end, and I was sitting with a, with a group of, of my friends, and one friend in particular who was very well-liked, very popular, and I was very pleased to be counted among his friends, asked a question. He said, what kind of name is God? Now, that's a great question, right? Except the way he asked it was not one of inquiry. It was almost kind of said in a mocking tone, almost as if to say, what kind of name is God anyway? And of course, I knew the answer because I had gone to church my whole life. I was a cradle Christian, okay? I had been following Jesus for almost 10 years at this particular point in my life. And I knew that He was God the Father, the Creator of heaven and earth. I knew that He was God the Father of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. I knew that He was God who functioned as part of the Holy Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I knew that He was the God that so loved all the earth that He sent His Son to die for all those that God dearly loves. I knew the answer. And when he said, so what kind of name is God anyway? I said, nothing. I said nothing. My courage failed me that day. And I don't know if it was I was afraid of being ridiculed. I was afraid of... Being outcast, I valued my friendship with this particular individual at that time more than anything else, but for whatever reason, that day I was a coward, and I said nothing. That's been more than 26 years ago. Well, fortunately, God has been graceful and gracious to me and has offered some, some time of uh, redemption in that relationship as life goes and as tragedy kind of comes into people's lives he and I have reconnected over the years and I've had the opportunity to tell him who God is 
that he is all those things that I just said that I should have said over 25 years ago. And I've had some incredible opportunities to share and talk about Jesus with him. And he's become a believer, and I've even had opportunities to, to minister to his family in ways that I could never have seen possible. And I'm grateful for that because I think, at least for me, it indicates an area of, of growth in my faith. It indicates that maybe as I've grown to trust God more, that I've gained a little bit more confidence and a little bit more courage about what I believe. As you know, it's easy to be intimidated when it comes to our faith, is it not? It's easier to just say nothing than to say something, right? It was for me, just as I know you probably can relate to that. There is a, almost a natural sense not to upset the herd or to overturn the apple cart or whatever, whatever metaphor you'd like to use to keep the, the status quo and not say something. In certain situations, we know that talking about our faith can do that, right? If you can relate to that, just show me, uh, just give me a show of hands. If you can relate to that, good. I think all of us, or most of us, understand what that feeling is like. We also know that if we are followers of Jesus, that we are to be two things. We are to be something that goes on our table, what's it called? Salt, and something that is blinding me from this side of the room right now, light. We are to be salt and light in the way that we interact with people in the way that we conduct ourselves and, and demonstrate our faith. Now then, we also know that just because we are supposed to do something doesn't mean we always do it, right? It also means that just because we're supposed to do something doesn't mean it's easy. And if I've discovered anything after following Jesus for a long time, faith is not easy, right? Faith is not easy because I don't have all the answers. I don't have certainty. Because if I had certainty, guess what I wouldn't have? Faith. Funny how that works. So I have to continue to trust God. What we all could use a good dose of is courage and growth when it comes to our faith. Am I right? Those are things that I think we all need. And as we come to, to Acts chapter 18 today, we're going to look at four different individuals that display both courage in their faith and then we're going to see times of growth in their faith. As you remember, or may not, from two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 17. And Paul was in Athens. And he was waiting for... Silas and Timothy to come and join him and while he was there he just sort of took a sightseeing tour of Athens and as he walked through the city he noticed all these idols to all of these different gods and he became very distressed by them and he even noticed one to an unknown god remember that well he made his way in front of the Athenian high court Mars Hill and he began presenting his case. And he knows what the Athenians are known for. These great minds, this great 
philosophy. It's the birthplace of philosophy. People like Socrates are from Athens. And he easily could have said, you guys are supposed to be the smartest people on earth, yet you're worshiping and putting faith in marble and stone and, and metal. You know, you're supposed to be the smartest people around. You have people that just sit around thinking stuff up. You guys are fools. And he very easily could have done that. But he chose a, a different path. And he said, look, I see that you guys are very religious. Remember this? I see that you're very religious. I'm religious too. I noticed an idol to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that unknown God. And he took that gathered common ground and he began to tell them about Jesus. And he even made a couple of converts along the way. Well, as 18 opens, Paul has made his way down to Corinth, which is a, a very important city. And eventually he's going to establish a church in Corinth. Now then, we know a lot about Corinth because we have at least two of the three letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And what we know about the church in Corinth is that it was nuts. Okay? It was crazy. Their worship service was just kind of all over the place. And Paul addresses, addresses this church in Corinth. And, you know, we can rejoice and we can feel good about ourselves because we see that there's grace even for a few nuts in God's kingdom. Okay? Because, truth be told, we might be counted among some of those nuts. Right? Okay, I mean, if we're just being honest, so we, we, so we, we learn a lot about, about God's grace. So Paul goes down to Corinth. Let's just, uh, let's just read the text together and let it, uh, let it speak to us. After he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul came to them. And since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Now that's, that's pretty straightforward. Paul arrives in Corinth. He meets up with these two people, these two believers, Aquila and Priscilla, and they are tent makers, and Paul has some training in making tents, and so Paul, you know, he's, he's not preaching full-time, so he's still got to support himself, he's still got to support his missionary efforts. He goes sort of bivocational for a while, and he takes up the trade of tent making. Okay, Aquila and Priscilla are there because they have been kicked out of Rome. Because Emperor Claudius has said, you guys are just causing too much trouble, get out. He kicks them out, and so they end up here in Corinth where they meet up with Paul. And it says that every Sabbath day, every Sabbath day, Paul went to the synagogue and tried to reason with both Jews and Greeks which meant the other six days a week, because they don't have a five-day work week, okay? Sunday through Friday, Paul spends his time making tents. But on Saturday, the Sabbath, he goes to synagogue where he reasons from God's Word to try to convince these Jews and Greeks. Now then, watch in verse 5. 
When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word. In other words, he went back to full-time preaching at this time. And he testified to the Jews that the Messiah, testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Now then watch verse 6. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own hands. Heads, I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. We see Paul's typical pattern right here. He goes to the synagogue. He begins to speak. Some of the Jews have a problem with what he says. And things just kind of turn bad for him. Okay? And so what he's saying, you know, he kind of he stands up after they're blaspheming. He shakes out his clothes, which is just sort of the, the Hebrew way of saying, you know what, I'm done with you guys. Okay? I've talked, I've explained, I've reasoned, I've offered proof for what I believe, and yet you're still being hard-headed. You're refusing to, to see what I am saying. So guess what? I'm done, to you, done with you. And so what he says now is from now on I'm going to the Gentiles. Now then, he's not ever going to not deal with Jews again because he's going to do it in a minute. He's talking about in Corinth, you Jewish Corinthians, you don't want to hear what I have to say. So I'm going to start focusing primarily, I'm going to start focusing primarily on the Gentiles that live here. Watch what happens. So he left there, verse 7, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So he literally left the synagogue, went one door down, and found an audience. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, along with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed, and were baptized. Now then, Crispus, I don't know. Maybe he was there at the synagogue as Paul is reasoning, and he becomes convinced, but he's afraid to say something. Maybe his courage is not strong enough, or whatever reason. But he becomes a believer, and he and his whole household, along with other people there in Corinth, were baptized and come and become believers. Now then, watch verse 9. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking, and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. Imagine what that must have been like for Paul to receive this word from Jesus. Think about everything that he has been through in the time that we've been looking at his life. As we read this part of the text, he is at the end of his second missionary journey, his second missionary trip. Okay, And, and what have we seen in his time out on the road in the seas? How many times... Has he encountered resistance? How many times have there been false accusations made against him? How many times have we seen him be arrested? How many times has Paul been stoned? How many times have people tried to stone Paul? That's a different translation. How many times has Paul been beaten to within an inch of his life? How many times has Paul been 
chased out of or expelled from a city or from a region. Too many to list, right? From our perspective or from a Western perspective, you can look at Paul's career and you can step back and say, man, you know, you got a lot of failure here. Because everywhere you go, there's controversy. Everywhere you go, Paul, people try to kill you. Okay? Everywhere you go, they try to run you out of town and they harass you and they accuse you of all of these things. And I can just sort of imagine that Paul is, is laying there at night in his bed in Corinth when all of a sudden this, this vision of Jesus appears and says, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking for I am with you. Imagine what a shot in the arm that must have been to Paul. You see, but when I think about Paul, I think about somebody who is, is strong and he's fearless and he's, he's courageous and he always has the right answers. But then I have to remember that Paul is also human, which means he is subject to disappointment and he's subject to, to pain and he's subject to, to fear. And I imagine that there might have been times when he's thinking back and he says, you know, I was arrested here. And, well, I went to the synagogues and, boy, they, they really hate me there. And One time they tried to kill me with rocks. and then Another time they beat me with sticks so bad I couldn't even walk for days. And I've been arrested. And God, are you sure this is the work you have for me? And then Jesus appears to him in a vision. And he gives him this powerful shot of, of confidence. And you know, we tend to think that Paul goes from one place to another and he just he's there for a minute and then he leaves. But verse 11 tells us that Paul stayed in Corinth. He stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. And I think there's a lesson, I think there's a valuable lesson that we can learn from Paul from this story right here, and it's simply this, trust in Jesus, He is with us. And sometimes I, I think we, we forget that. But we must believe that we are under the protection of God if we are about His work. Now, that does not mean that we'll escape harm or even death. As a matter of fact, the Romans are eventually going to execute Paul. But we must believe that Jesus will be with us until our witness is complete. Therefore, we must take courage in our, in our faith. So what happens the rest of that passage? Is that there's another incident with the, the synagogue, and it ends up before the, uh, the proconsul. And he says, look, hey, look, this is a Jewish thing. I don't have time to hear this. And he just sort of dismisses the whole thing. Verse 18 says, After staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters. He sailed away to Syria, accompanied by, notice this, Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Chintria because of a vow that he had taken. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue, and he debated with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined, but he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again, if God wills, 
Then he set sail from Ephesus. On landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and he greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. Okay? So he goes to Ephesus. He takes Priscilla and Aquila. He leaves them there to do work. Then he sails back on down to Caesarea. He goes to Jerusalem, which is sort of the mother church. And then he heads north up to Antioch, where his base of operations are. And this is the end. This is the end of his second missionary journey. Verse 23 begins the start of the third. After spending some time there, he set out and he traveled through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he's going back to all of these other places that he's been. He's going back to all these other churches, encouraging them, strengthening them, supporting them. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? What do you need? What issues are you facing? And sort of building them up in the faith. As we get to this last section, we meet the fourth character in our story. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in where? Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he only knew John's baptism. So this is Apollos. Apollos is a very powerful, a very eloquent, a very educated Jew who believes in Jesus and passionately preaches Jesus to the other Jews, but Luke gives us this one little thing about him, this one little disclaimer, although he only knows John's baptism. John's baptism is, is the baptism of who? John the... John the... John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance. A baptism that was meant to prepare one for the coming of Jesus. Now then, watch verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Do you notice what they did? They didn't stand up in the middle of his sermon and say, yo, you missed something. You missed it bad. This baptism thing, yeah, baptism's good, but you are really, really way off on your understanding. They realize that he's got a hole in his teaching. You know, he's very eloquent, he's very powerful, he's very knowledgeable, he's very educated, but there's a part of his faith that needs to be expanded a little further, okay? And instead of, you know, blasting him publicly, instead of calling him out and, and, and bringing embarrassment on him, what does it say they do? They took him, what? Aside. And what? Explain to him the way of God more accurately now that we don't know what it was that they explained but we know what he believes before the explaining happens he believes in this baptism of repentance and we can imagine 
that Priscilla, the woman, and Aquila, the man, began teaching Apollos, this man, that Jesus, this Jesus you're talking about, has come. And he is the resurrected Son of God. And this baptism is now, it's so much more than just a baptism of repentance. It's the baptism that inaugurates the kingdom of God. It is the baptism that initiates and brings one into the kingdom of God. That brings about new creation in one's life. That gives an invitation and an introduction into the advancement of the gospel and of the kingdom of God. They explain to him more clearly, more clearly the gospel of the resurrected Christ. And then watch what it says. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. He now understands. Because, why? Because two people, this godly couple, this man and this woman, Priscilla and Aquila, took the time to call him aside and say, Hey, look, what you're doing is awesome. It's great. Let me help you to understand this. Let me help you to understand this a little bit more. And then he goes on and he begins demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is indeed Messiah. Now then, there's something in verse 26 that I think we need to notice. You have Priscilla, who is a woman, who taught, along with her husband, Apollos. Priscilla is mentioned first, indicating that she might be the lead teacher here. Now then, there's only one place in Scripture where women are told not to teach men, and that's in 1 Timothy 2.12. Yet we see right here in Acts 18 that you have Priscilla teaching Apollos. And so I could be wrong about this, and I recognize that I could be wrong about this, but I think we have to conclude that Paul's instruction to Timothy is contextual. It's isolated to to that specific church and not necessarily a universal command here. But again, I could be wrong about this. Now I have seen, and, and you may have seen this too, I have seen churches that have pulled godly women out of children's classes because a young boy is baptized. Anybody ever seen that before? Does that make sense to anybody? Because it doesn't make it doesn't make sense to me. Now then, like I said, I recognize that I could be I can be wrong about this. This is also going to come back in play in just a few chapters in a couple of weeks. But what we see is the faith and the courage of four individual people in this story. And what we can learn, what we can take away from this in our community connection is this. 
The faith of a disciple is courageous and growing. Or at least the faith of a disciple should be courageous and growing. Does that, does that make sense? The faith of a disciple should be courageous and growing. Now then, some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you will have no clue. Who remembers Father Knows Best? A lot of you do. Now, a lot of you probably remember watching that on TV, right? Show of hands if you've watched that on TV when it was like on the air. Not Nick at Night. There are others of us who saw it on Nick at Night. I'm in that crowd. Okay? But the basic premise of the show is what? Father knows best. Well, from this chapter, we kind of have something similar to that. We need to listen to Papa. But it's not Papa as in Father. We can learn some lessons from Priscilla, Aquila, Paul, and Apollos. You see the acrostic? There are some definite lessons that we can learn from their life. Some takeaways in having a, a courageous and growing faith. The first is this. Courageously speak about or live out your faith. Now, that's easier said than done, right? Absolutely. But if we are going to be salt and light, that means that at least one of those things, or if not both, should be taking place, right? Yes? Absolutely. Which means we need to be talking to people about our faith. I've been encouraged by our ladies uh, who have been talking and sharing their faith with people that they've been in, coming in contact with. Anybody else encouraged by that? Does that embolden you just a little bit? Because it does me. Okay? Now then, I recognize that we got a lot of teachers in this room. And you can't just say whatever you want to say, okay? So if you can't say what you want to say, then maybe there's a certain way we need to live and act, right? And our life needs to be a demonstration of our faith, right? Absolutely. Now then, and to, let me say that, and I say this all the time, and I mean it with all the sincerity that I can muster. If you are going to say something or do something that is going to embarrass the church and make you look not like a Christian, please, please, for the love of God, don't tell people you're a Christian. Okay? I, I cannot say that loudly and clearly enough. Okay? Because there's a reason why people call churches and Christians hypocrites. It's because, well, we act like hypocrites. If we're going to be salt and light followers of Jesus, then we must speak courageously about our faith, and we must live out our faith. This means that we have to step out. We have to be willing to, to take risks. The second thing is we have to keep learning. How many teachers do we have in here? How many of you believe that it's vital, or have been a teacher? How many of you believe that it's important for students to keep learning? Right, absolutely. How many of you, teacher or not, have a job that believes in continuing education? Raise your hand. Why is that? Because there's new stuff to learn all the time. Yet, have you noticed that a lot of people, when it comes to the Bible, and it comes to Jesus and faith, 
they get the basics down and like, boom, got it, nailed. And they don't learn anything else. We have to keep learning because, and you know this as well as I do, as soon as you stop learning, you stop growing. Right? And what I've also found is that when you stop learning and when you stop growing, you also become closed-minded. We have to keep learning. Same side of, or the other side of the coin is we must be aware of the sense of arrival. Okay? When I was a freshman or sophomore in Bible college, which, by the way, I still contend that freshman Bible majors should not be allowed to speak in public or speak, period, for one year. They must learn in silence and submission. I believe that. It should be. Probably is in the Bible somewhere. But when I was that, and I was allowed to speak and made an absolute fool of myself on more than one occasion, I do remember one bit of wisdom that sunk in when a senior Bible major said to a mutual friend of ours, you know, you ever get to that point where you feel like you just know it all? You know, in all of 22, I'm sure he, he, he did. Because 22 is, you know, mature, and, and you know all about life and, and living. But I remember thinking, you know, I'm not a very smart guy, but that seems a lot dumber than I am. We have to be aware of our, our sense of arrival. When I was going through graduate school, my New Testament professor, Mark Black, he's, just, he's brilliant. Uh, one thing was impressed on me over and over and over again through his teaching. He would share something with us, and it would be something we hadn't heard before, something we haven't thought before. And he never said, hey, look, I'm right. I'm the professor. I'm the teacher. He said exactly what I said just a few minutes ago. Hey, look, I recognize, I recognize that I could be wrong about this. And he showed a, a, a tremendous amount of, of humility. And there was not a sense of, you know, I've got a Ph.D. in New Testament you got nothing to say against me. I've arrived. You know? So we have to be mindful of that as well. Fourth lesson. If you misteach something, it doesn't make you a false teacher. Okay? I think that false teacher thing has to do with specifically choosing to mislead somebody. Does that make sense? So, now then. We agree that we got to keep learning, right? How many of you think differently now as opposed to when you first became a Christian? In other words, how many of you have grown in your faith? Raise your hand. If you've grown in your faith. Okay, good. Now then, I know that some of you, like me, you have taught things that maybe now you see a little bit differently, right? So, by that logic, anybody could say, oh, you're a false teacher. But surely that can't be right, right? Because we, we grow in our faith and we grow in our understanding. I can, I can think back to a sermon, and it's so embarrassing, I'm not even going to tell you about it. But I can think back to a sermon that I preached in December of 1996 that I look back now and go, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? What on earth was I 
thinking. And I don't think that way now. And I wouldn't preach that way now. Okay? But just because you, you, you might misteach something or don't have a complete understanding, don't let somebody say, hey, man, you're a false teacher. Okay, because number one, that's a very serious black mark on somebody's reputation. And also, it carries with it the idea, not so much the teaching, but the person's motive and the person's heart. A person who's willing to deceive somebody and, and mislead somebody. Does that, does that make sense? Good. Here's a big one. If you're wrong, be willing to learn and continue to grow. Who's good at this one? Show of hands. This, uh, this is not my hand being up, by the way. I'm just asking for a show of hands. Who's not good at it? This is my hand being up. This is tough. It is tough to admit that we're wrong, yes or no. But, you know, there comes a time, because we're not all perfect, there comes a time when we will get something wrong, and we have to face that with humility, right? Remember how I told you a couple of weeks ago that I had somebody say to me one time, well, you think you're right about everything. And, of course, I do think I'm right about everything. Why? Because why would I purposely hold a wrong opinion? Which means all of you think you're right about everything, too. But when it turns out that we have made a mistake and we have got something wrong, you know, we can say, you don't know what you're talking about. I know what I know. You think what you think. I'm out of here. Even when people show it to us right in front of us. But the better approach, the approach of a growing and a courageous faith is to say, you know, I see, okay, I don't get it yet, but I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to be humble. Is that not exactly what we saw from Apollos? He was very educated. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. Here's this educated Jew, yet he was willing to say, you know what, okay. And he was willing to. To listen. So here's what we have to do. You remember a few weeks ago, the Bereans, you remember reading about the Bereans? What must we do? We need to be like the Bereans. Who did what? Searched the scriptures daily to see if we're right, to see where we're wrong, to see where we need to make some adjustments. And then lastly is this one right here. This was so important. Correct or correctly correct. Do it in a private manner. Do it respectfully. This is what Priscilla and Aquila did. They didn't stand up and say, hey, Apollos, you're nuts. You've missed it. They pulled him away. How did it say? They pulled him aside and explained to him. Has anybody ever been called out publicly before? Who enjoyed that? Yes, hate it, yes. Anybody enjoy that? Because I don't. That's no fun. But the godly way to do it is to pull someone aside and say, hey, I think you missed something. Okay, now then, I, I said something a little different a few minutes ago. Okay, and so I hope that, and I recognize that I might be wrong about it, and I hope if you think that, that you'll come to me and say, hey, let's talk about this. Instead of, hey, look, you're a fool. Because how many people do you know have had their lives changed by being called out publicly? Anybody? Many? Not very few. These are the lessons from Papa that we see from 
Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, and Paul, that we are to courageously speak about our faith, that we must keep learning in our faith, that we must be aware of a sense of arrival, that when we continue to grow, that our, our, our understanding of things may change, and just because our understanding changes in a growing faith doesn't mean that we're, we're false teachers. It means that if we're wrong, we have to be humble about it. And it means that if we have to correct, and we're human, so eventually we're going to have to correct or be corrected, then we need to do it the right way. Does that make sense? These are the lessons from Papa. And I think these things are part of a faith that is courageous and growing. Let's pray together.